Hey, I want to begin with you this morning uh, a little differently than I normally would. I want to take you on an imaginary sort of journey. And so uh, I want you to imagine with me, if you will, a house. Can you think about a house? I want you to imagine a, a large house. And the walls of this house are thick. Um, and the windows of this house seem to conceal mysteries. There's, there's something about the house that's a, a little bit mysterious and unknown to us. The people who live in the house are unique. Uh, they're different from any other group of people in the world, and they have unique privileges that are theirs and only theirs because they live in that house. Now, we're going to name the house. We'll, we'll call it the House of Israel. Uh, it's a good biblical name because you'll find this name, the House of Israel, you'll find it in the Bible over 150 times. The people who live within this House of Israel um, are a people who are very, very devoted to their faith. They're very observant of the laws and guide, uh, guidelines and guidance that they've been given as worshipers. They are rather exclusive in their view of everyone else. They understand that they have been called to a special place and no other nation has been called to that place. The rules by which they live in the house are a bit restrictive. Some would even say they are enslaving. Now, in this house, there is a major focus in this family on history and heritage. They talk a lot about the patriarchs and where they've come from and, and how their current lives have been informed and shaped by their history and by who their ancestors were. There are pious priests that move among them and stern Pharisees who watch over them and wise lawyers who instruct them in the ways in which they are to live. And all of these, the priests and the Pharisees and the lawyers, they, they place heavy burdens on the people. They, they place restrictive rules and regulations upon all of the people who were a part of that family. Are you seeing it with me? Do you see the house now and all the people living in this house? Now imagine, if you will, the arrival of Jesus Christ at this house. At the beginning, he's just sort of speaking from the outside, from the yard, if you will. But, but he, he begins to push into the house. And he comes preaching to the people who live in this house with an authority like they've never heard before. He, he speaks to them like none of their teachers have ever spoken. He speaks with an authority that no man before him had ever had and that no man since has ever had. He preaches to the people living in this house about the kingdom of God, not about their nation so much or their house so much, but about a, a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God that would extend beyond their house. 
He even speaks to them about Gentiles being a part of that kingdom. He talks of a new covenant. And he even frames the discussion descriptively by talking about a new wine that he's bringing and that his new wine won't fit in their old wineskins, that the wineskins would burst, that they must now embrace a new wineskin for this new wine that he's bringing. And so now Jesus is fully inside the house and he's surrounded by the people living in the house and he's talking about this kingdom that's coming and this new wine. And with his teaching and by his death and his resurrection, imagine Jesus kicks out a wall. He kicks out the back wall of the house. And suddenly the house is open now to brand new vistas and and a beautiful view of a life with God that is far beyond anything they could have ever known inside of that house. And he invites them to come and, and to explore this new life and to enjoy this new relationship with God and with him. And some do. Some of them leave the house. In fact, some of them come running by faith outside of the house and they, and they follow Jesus into this new relationship. But many don't. A lot are afraid and they cling to the house because the house is all they've ever known. And so they're afraid to leave that house. Now imagine Gentiles, countless Gentiles who have heard the message of Jesus. The message that Jesus had been preaching to those within the house has now been and is being proclaimed to the Gentiles. And imagine that these countless Gentiles are running to this new life with Jesus. They're flocking into this relationship with Jesus and they're calling God their father, the God of the people in the house. These Gentiles are now calling him their father. They're talking to him like they know him. And they're calling Jesus their savior. And they're doing this by running past the house. They're not even looking at the house. They're paying the house no attention at all. And suddenly, the people in the house see the Gentiles running past the house. And they say, hey, You can't do that. If you're going to go there, you've got to come through our house. And they begin calling the Gentiles in to their house. And so now you have this house with the back wall kicked out that was supposed to have emptied at the invitation of Jesus. It's now just filling back up with more and more people who are trying to follow all the house rules. Are you with me? Now enter the Apostle Paul. He comes to the house and he's fiery mad. And he's preaching. And he's saying to them, what are you people doing in this house? Can you not see that Jesus has kicked the back wall out 
of the house. You cannot relate to God like he wants you to by staying in the house. Jesus brought you a way to get out of the house. Now get out of here and go live out there in that new vista provided by Jesus. And that is where you land in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Would you follow along? Let's read the text. Galatians 5 beginning in verse 1. Here's Paul's message to the people hanging out in the house. Stand fast, therefore, he says, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And do not become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, uh, you that, uh, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. And Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, do wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ... Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but only faith, which works by love. You were running so well. Imagine those Gentiles running past that house, and now they've been called into the house. You were running so well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion, this belief, this way of thinking, that you must keep the law. This persuasion is not coming from him who has called you. Verse 9 is a warning. Beware, he says, a little leaven leaveneth, or a little leaven will infect and spread throughout the whole lump. Now for all of us who have entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, in fact, if that's you, would you shout amen? amen? For all of us who just said amen, all of us who have entered into a saving relationship with Jesus, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us a crystal clear command. It's not a suggestion, it is a command. And he clarifies it by presenting it to us in the positive in the first place, and then by giving us the negative side of it as well, just to make sure we understand it completely. Write it down. Let's talk about this command. He tells, uh, tells us that we should stand firm in freedom. That's the positive side. Stand firm in freedom and refuse, here's the negative side, refuse legalistic bondage. This is verse one. Stand firm in your freedom and refuse to be entangled in legalistic Bondage. Look at verse number one again. The Bible says, stand, for, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. I love this verse. I love the affirmation of the verse. Christ, everybody say the name with me. Christ has set us free. Somebody say, praise God. 
this is what he's done. Christ has set me free. What am I? I am free. And why am I free? For one reason and one reason only. Because Christ has set us free. Now, what is it exactly that Christ has set us free from? I would suggest a couple of things. One would be very obvious and and, and a great blessing. It is that Christ has set us free from the penalty of sin. You know, there is a penalty to sin, right? We ought to be aware of that because we're all sinners. And the Bible says that when we sin, we violate God's law. There's a consequence. There's a punishment. And there's a penalty. And the scripture tells us what that penalty is. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. Wages of sin is death. It means that when we sin, things die. Because we sin, we will one day die. And because we are sinners, we will be dead eternally in hell, separate from God forever if we are not set free by Christ. There's a penalty to sin. Here's the good news. Christ has set us free. Praise God from that penalty. Can I tell you? I am a hell-proof person. It is impossible for me to go to hell. Why? Because Christ has set me free from that penalty. That's, That's a blessing. The second thing, though, that we would say is that Christ sets us free from the power of sin. Because I am free in Christ, I don't have to be enslaved to sin any, any longer. I don't have to be in bondage to the things that I once was in bondage to. I don't have to live under the thumb uh, or the tyranny of sin because I'm free from that. I don't have to live under it. Christ has set me free from it. And so those are, those are wonderful blessings of our freedom. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the power of sin. But I would suggest to you that neither one of those freedoms is what Paul is suggesting or what he has in mind in the book of Galatians. Rather, write this down, I think that Paul is talking to us about the freedom that we have from a guilty conscience of sin. Write that down. Paul says that, God, or that Christ has set us free from a guilty conscience of sin. Now, look with me as you're jotting that down in chapter 4 and verse number 31. You'll remember from last week that Paul in chapter 4 draws this this, uh, metaphor. He takes the life of Hagar and her son Ishmael, fathered by Abraham through the flesh, and then the life of Sarah and her son Isaac, miraculously fathered by Abraham as God awakened the womb of Sarah in her old age, but it was by the power of the Spirit that Isaac was born. And he drew this metaphor, this parallel, to say, we are not the children or the descendants of Ishmael through Hagar or the flesh. We are the descendants of Isaac through faith and by the power of the Spirit. That was the illustration he was drawing. So chapter 4, verse 31 says, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but we are children of the free. We're children of the free woman. So we're not cast out like Ishmael was. We are included. We are received in the family like Isaac was. So chapter 5, verse 1 says, Stand therefore, because we are the children of the free woman, we are the children of the free, we are the children in the family. Stand firm or fast, therefore, in the freedom wherewith Christ has set us 
free. He's talking about the fact that we are accepted, right? We, we are accepted in God's family. This is the freedom that I have. I don't have to have guilt in my conscience. I don't have to feel like an outsider from God's family. That guilt is gone. My conscience has been clean. My conscience has been purged. And now I know that I am accepted in the family of God. I want you to hold your finger in Galatians 5 and go with me over to the book of Hebrews. And I want to show you uh, where this is mentioned in Hebrews chapter number 9. Would you look there with me, please? Uh, just quickly, it's, it's right a few pages forward in your Bible, toward the end of the Bible. And uh, go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. Now, I'm just going to read several verses here, and I want you to follow along with me and, and watch as the logic of this freedom of conscience is developed in Hebrews chapter number 9. So the writer of Hebrews, by the way, before we read, the writer of Hebrews is talking, he's comparing and contrasting the old covenant under the law with the new covenant under grace. It's not unlike what Paul's doing in Galatians uh, throughout the, the entire book of Galatians. So in, in Hebrews 9, in verse 1, he says, Then truly the first covenant, talking about the, the uh, covenant under the law, The first covenant had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. He's talking about the tabernacle of Israel, ultimately the temple of Israel, and all of the worship that happened within that tabernacle or that temple. He describes it, verse 2, there was a tabernacle made. Uh, in the first part of that tabernacle, there was the golden candlestick and the table of showbread. And this was called the sanctuary or the, or the holy place. And after the second veil or further into the tabernacle or the temple, beyond the veil, verse 3 says, uh, there was another space, another room called the holy of holies or the holiest of all. He's describing the temple, the tabernacle. And inside that room, the holy of holies, was the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. And in that Ark of the Covenant was the golden pot of, uh, that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant or the Ten Commandments were there. So this is the Ark of the Covenant being described in the uh, Holy of Holies. Over the Ark of the Covenant, verse 5 says, were the cherubim of glory. They were shadowing the mercy seat. And he says, I, I can't talk about that uh, right now. By the way, I love it when anywhere in the Bible it says, uh, we'll talk about that later, we don't have time. It just helps me, do, you know, when I'm preaching, feel that way. Like, okay, we'll get back to that later. He says in verse 5, I can't talk about that right now. Verse number 6, now when these things were thus ordained. In other words, when the temple stood and the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies and it was under the covenant of the law, he says, when these things were thus ordained, at that time, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of the ministry of God. But into the second, that is into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest would go alone once every year. And he would not go without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Now, the Holy Ghost was thus signifying, he was showing us that the way into the holiest of all, that is the way to the presence of God, was not yet made manifest while the tabernacle was still standing, which was a figure or a shadow or a symbol for that time then present in which were offered both gifts 
and sacrifices, which could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Stop right there. What Paul is saying, or what the writer of Hebrews is saying, whoever you believe wrote Hebrews, we don't know for sure, but what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that when the tabernacle or the temple stood, one day a year the high priest would go in and he would, he would perform this service before the, the Ark of the Covenant. He would bring the blood of the offering. But he would go in there knowing this, listen carefully, that his outside, his body, had been cleansed by the sacrifice of the lamb, the blood applied. It had been cleansed ceremonially. Externally, he was clean. But that priest knew that his inside, his heart, his conscience was still unclean. So every time the priest went into the Holy of Holies, he knew that he was going under the protection of ceremony, but he didn't deserve to be there because he was a sinner and he knew he was a sinner and his mind was condemning him always that he was out of place. He was in a place where he should not be because that place and that God was far too holy for him to be there. Do you understand? That's what he's saying. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sin reality, the guilt of his conscience. It could only wash him ceremonially on the outside. Verse number 10 says this this process stood only or this, this approach to God, this worship stood only in meats and drinks and various washings and carnal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of reformation. Verse 11, but Christ. Everybody say those words. But Christ. Praise God for those two words. But Christ, who came as a high priest, but a better high priest, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, But by his own blood, he, Christ, entered once into the holy place in heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Amen. He says that Christ's sacrifice was better than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Christ's blood was more powerful than the blood of bulls and goats. And the ministry of Christ, our high priest, was greater than the ministry of that high priest on the earth, whose conscience constantly condemned him and everyone who would approach the presence of God. Look at verse number 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats, these earthly sacrifices, the ashes of a heifer being sprinkled on the unclean, if those things are able to sanctify to the purifying of the flesh. In other words, if if the outside of a man under a Levitical system where he can approach God and make a sacrifice because some goat blood or some bull blood or the offering of a sacrifice, that blood has cleansed him ceremonially. If that allows him to come before God on the outside, he's clean, but his mind, his heart is still guilty. He says in verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall that blood purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you are listening, say amen. Here's what he's saying. 
He's saying that that priest always would come mindful of his own sin because the blood of bulls and goats could only cleanse the outside. But don't you understand that the blood of Christ has set you free from internal conscience guilt so that you now know you are accepted in the family of God. Not because of the keeping of a law or the following of some ordinances, but because the blood of Christ has cleansed your conscience. Go back to Galatians chapter number five. This is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the fact that we have been set free because we are the children of the free. We have been set free from the guilty conscience of sin and now we should stand firm in that freedom. I just want to suggest to you that the most freeing fact of the gospel is the knowledge that we are accepted. Everybody say accepted. We are accepted by God. We are acceptable to God. And we are accepted in the presence of God. It is secured for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is never a moment, listen to me, there is never a moment when a child of God Regardless of my stumblings, failures, faltering, there is never a moment when a child of God is unacceptable in the family of God because Christ has made us accepted. And while I will sin and feel a guilt because of my sin and a conviction which is good and right, doesn't mean I can sin with impunity, there is never a moment when my sin disqualifies me from being accepted in the presence of God because Christ has qualified me to be accepted in the presence of God. He says to us, know this, that we should stand firm in this freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. There is nothing that I must do or can ever do to earn my acceptance before God. In fact, listen to the way Ephesians says this. Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6 says this, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein in the grace of God we have been made accepted in the beloved. We are acceptable to God through Christ, we are accepted by God through Christ, and nothing that we did earned that acceptance, and nothing that we can ever do will deny or disqualify that acceptance. If you understand, say amen. This is the reason that Paul says, stand in this. Be firm in this, because this is what Christ died to provide for you. This guiltless freedom before God, Christ became guilty so that you could be guiltless. Now, by the way, let me just stop and, and take an aside and apply this a little bit. There's a wonderful principle here for parents. Here's a wonderful parenting truth. As parents, we should decide that our children, while sometimes they must be disciplined, sometimes our fellowship, our relationship with them will be strained because of behavior, we must decide that our children never need to earn our acceptance. They are accepted. They are in our family. They are accepted because of their position as a child of mine or a child of yours. 
And then we encourage them to live out who they are in that family, but we are not, they are not in and out of our acceptance, in and out of our good favor, in and out of our family based on their behavior. Let's follow the model of our heavenly father in that. So Paul says in chapter five, verse one, you've been made free, born into the family. You are accepted by God and you are free from a guilty conscience. So chapter five, verse one, stand fast. Do not forfeit that. Stand firm in that freedom. The word stand fast means to persevere in. Don't move away from it. Stay there. Stand firm in it. This is a phrase, by the way, that Paul uses a number of places in the New Testament where he says, I want you to lock your feet in place and I want you to stand firm in this. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says, stand firm in the faith. Don't move away from the faith. In Philippians 1 and 27, he says, stand firm in your unity. Don't move away from one another. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, stand firm in the word. Don't move away from my teaching. And in chapter 5 of Galatians, he's saying, in the same way that you should stay firm in the faith, in the same way that you should stay firm in your unity, in the same way that you should stand firm in the word, I want you to stand firm in this freedom. Now, that's the positive command. Stand firm in freedom. The negative command then in chapter 5, verse 1 is this. Do not become entangled with a yoke of bondage. Would you do me a favor? It'll help you later when you come back across this verse. Look at verse number 1, and I want you to circle three words. In, in chapter 5 and verse number 1, I want you to circle the word entangled yoke and bondage. I've circled them in my Bible. Entangled, yoke, and bondage. All three of those words are words which are the opposite of freedom. Stand firm in freedom. Don't be entangled. Stand firm in freedom. Cast off the yoke. Stand firm in freedom. Don't be in bondage. You know what these words mean. The word entangled means to be wrapped up in, all called up in. Yoke, a yoke is like a yoke of oxen where you bind a, 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 an ox to, a, to another ox to, to servitude where they serve together. Bondage is slavery. He says, look, Christ became guilty so you could be guiltless. Christ was rejected so that you could be accepted. So stand firm in what Christ has done for you and don't get all bound up in those bondages and those legalistic requirements again, which would entangle you in that yoke of servitude. Now, the Jewish people that he's writing to had come out of the law. They had, they had left the house. They had trusted in Christ. They had left their confidence in trusting in the law. The Gentiles that he's talking to had come out of bondage as well. They were in bondage to pagan cultic practices, to Caesar worship, and all sorts of bondages that they were in. They had left their bondage, and they had come to trust in Christ. And now the legalizers were calling them back into the house. The Judaizers were saying, you've got to come back into the house, and you've got to keep the law in order to have that relationship with God. And for the Jews, the issue he deals with it very forthrightly in chapter 5, is the issue of circumcision. For every Jewish man, that was the physical mark of his identification that he was a keeper of the law and that he was a descendant of Abraham. But for us, that's not, that's not the issue for us. But what might be some issues that we would get called up in, that people sometimes get called up in today believing I have to do this keep this requirement or that requirement in order to be saved. Well, what about baptism? 
there are a number of Christian denominations, Christian sects, which teach that baptismal regeneration is true. In other words, that you cannot be saved if you're not baptized. Well, you need to hear me say, it's not true, it's false. You can be saved without being baptized. We're a Baptist church, right? And we believe in baptism. And if you're going to join our church, you have to be saved and you have to be baptized. We'll baptize you if you haven't been. And if you have been baptized by another church, we need for them to tell us that they've baptized you. And if you're not a part of another church, but you have been baptized, then you need to tell us that you've been baptized. Here's the thing. You can't join our church without being saved and baptized, but you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. Salvation is is through Jesus plus nothing minus nothing. What about issues of uh, Catholicism? There are, there are uh, teachings in the Catholic Church which say that, if, that you must perform certain acts in order to secure or maintain your salvation. Catholicism teaches the necessity of contrition and confession to a human priest and acts of penance in order to secure or maintain your salvation. Here, here's what Paul says. He says, don't get, don't get bound up in that stuff. Baptism, works, anything else. Don't get bound up in those. Trust in Jesus alone. There are no add-ons to the work of Christ. Now, why is this so important? Really quickly, let me show you what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. He says to, to do so, to add on to your faith in Christ, to believe that you're accepted because you're baptized or because you've done some other thing, To believe that those things make you accepted before God does a number of things. Number one, write it down. To believe that invalidates the work of Christ. This is verse two. Behold, I, Paul, say that if you are circumcised, if you're trusting in the law, if you have to follow any particular law, Christ shall profit you nothing. Pretty bold statement. That if you believe you have to do something in order to be saved, it totally invalidates the work of Christ for you. Number two, he says, if you believe in some sort of works salvation, then you are self-imposing the entire law as a requirement. So for them, the big issue was circumcision. He says to them in verse number three, look, if you're going to add circumcision to it, then you're adding the whole law. So it's not just circumcision, it's every other law under the Mosaic system. In other words, you can't pick and choose. You can't say, I believe I have to do this thing and that thing, but not the other things. No, he says, you're either trusting in Christ or you're trusting in the law. And if you choose one part of the law, you get the whole law. you got to follow the whole thing. The third thing that he says is that when we believe in a work's salvation, we are totally rejecting the theology of grace. We're discounting, we're disbelieving grace. Look at verse number four. He says, if you do this, Christ has become of no effect to you, whosoever you are that is justified by the law, for you have fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace. That doesn't mean they're saved and then they're lost. What it means is you've rejected the way of grace, or you've stepped away from a belief that I can be saved by grace. Again, this has this sounds similar to some of the things written in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6 and chapter 10, where it talks about coming the grace way, almost to salvation, and then turning away from grace and embracing the law. He says, when you do this, you are falling and rejecting the theology of grace. Number four, he says, when you believe you have to do anything to be saved, you are being drawn away from God. 
Now, see, in this the opposite, this is the lie of Satan because legalism says do this and you'll be closer to God. Believe this and it'll make you more secure in your salvation. Paul says the opposite is true. Paul says when you believe you have to do something to be saved, it's separating you from God. Verse number eight, this persuasion, this belief that you're following does not come from him that called you. You're listening to the wrong voice. This does not come from God. Number five, he says, when you do this, when you believe that you have to do something to be saved, then it weakens the faith of others. This legalistic belief system will spread, verse number nine, like leaven going through a loaf of bread. So all of that to say that Paul's point, coming out of chapter four and into chapter five, is to say, look, you are children of the free. You are children of the family of God. You are acceptable to God and you are accepted by God. All because Jesus became guilty so your conscience could be cleaned and you never have to worry or wonder, am I accepted in the beloved? So stand in it and don't get entangled in that stuff again. He's, he's closing four chapters of teaching on this. Don't go back there. Can I be the voice of Paul to you? Don't go there. You trust in Jesus alone. Then in verse 5, Paul tells us not only what we should not do, but what we should do. In fact, what we must do. This is in verse number five. I want you to jot it down, then we'll read it. Just in closing, let's talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit um, in our freedom. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you know, um, this is what, week number seven that we've been in Galatians through these four chapters, now into chapter number five. And all through this letter, from the very beginning, Paul has been pointing us to grace, pointing us to grace, directing our attention to grace, and bringing us away from the law. Come by grace, trust in Christ. It's not in keeping the law. He's been calling us to faith and telling us not to trust in our works. And all along the way, he has been comparing and contrasting this idea of salvation as a work of the Spirit as opposed to salvation as a work of the flesh. Now listen carefully. He says that our salvation is something God does. It's not something that we have done. He says it is that salvation is the result of the power and the activity of God. It is not the result of the power and the activity of a person, namely ourselves. What he's been telling us all the way through and reaffirms in chapter 5, verse number 5, is that salvation is the work of God by faith and the power of God of the Spirit. Look at verse number five. He says, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Can you circle again in your Bible? Would you circle in verse number five the word Spirit? The Spirit of God? And then secondly, the hope of righteousness? And then thirdly, circle faith. It is through the Spirit that I hope I expect complete righteousness to be mine. And I believe that by faith. You know, if he had believed anything else, or if he had been, if this had been written by the legalizers or the Judaizers, then verse number five would read, for we through the work, or for we through the flesh do wait for righteousness. Or we through the keeping of the law do wait for righteousness. He says, no, for we through the Spirit to expect and hope and wait for that perfect righteousness to come. 
It is by the Holy Spirit. And here's here's the turn in what Paul is going to teach us now from from chapter 5, verse 5, all the way to the end of the book. He's going to teach us about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live out this life of guilt-free, guilt-free conscious, guilt-free standing before God Almighty. Can I just in closing give you very, very quickly, I've got five things to give you. I'm going to give them to you in four minutes. I promise. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? Number one, it is the Holy Spirit who begins the work of faith. You could not come to faith without the Holy Spirit giving you faith to believe. Listen to me carefully. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts a man of his sin and convinces him or her of the claims of Jesus Christ to be their Savior. That does not come from man's intellect. It doesn't come even from man's understanding. It doesn't come from from religious training. One thing only will cause a spiritually dead sinner to understand their condition and believe that Christ can change them through his death and resurrection. It is the Holy Spirit of God giving them that faith. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. By the way, that's the reason you should pray for your lost loved ones. As much as you talk to them, pray for them more. Because all of your talking, all of your arguing, and all of your articulating, as important as it is to share the gospel, it is required that we share the gospel. We do not have the intellect, the power, or the oratory ability to convince someone of the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. It is by faith. He begins the work of faith. Number two, the Holy Spirit brings about the new birth. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates the man or the woman. It's the Holy Spirit that saves We put our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit takes a dead person spiritually and brings them alive. And that's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again by the Spirit. In fact, Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says this. He saved us not by the righteous deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy and through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. The Holy Spirit is the one who saves me, not me, not my good works, not my deeds, not keeping the law. The Holy Spirit gave me faith to believe in Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit redeemed me, regenerated my life, made me alive. April 29th, 1981, I remember it like it was yesterday. I did nothing except believe, and I was born again by the power of the Spirit. Number three, the Holy Spirit then indwells the believer. He draws us to Christ He renews us in Christ, and then he comes to live within us because Christ has taken up his residence within us. He indwells the believer. This is chapter number four of Galatians and verse number six where he says, because you were sons, he has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. He indwells the believer. John 14, Jesus said, I'm not gonna leave you alone. I will send the comforter to you. He will be with you. He will be in you. Number four, The Holy Spirit conforms the believer into the likeness of Jesus, which, by the way, is the primary reason that he indwells you. It is his function in your life so that he might take your life and mine over the process of years, bit by bit, slowly by slowly, truth by truth, line upon line, precept upon precept, conviction by conviction, shaping by shaping. He's just whittling away what doesn't look like Jesus and adding in what does look like Jesus. It is his work in your life. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 in verse number 19. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm travailing in child pain until Christ is formed 
in you. Chapter 5, verse number 5, we are waiting for that hope of righteousness. It's a progressive righteousness which is occurring, which will ultimately be completed when we see him. The Holy Spirit conforms the believer into the likeness of Jesus. Lastly, did I do it in four minutes? I did. Number 5, he empowers the believer to serve Christ. Can I tell you something? You cannot serve Jesus on your own. You don't have it in you. Listen, if it weren't for the indwelling Holy Spirit, every one of us would run back to the world so fast it would make your head spin. We would run away from God. We would run away from Christ if the Holy Spirit didn't indwell us. But he gives us the power to serve Christ. And he'll begin teaching us this as he compares and contrasts in chapter 5 the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And next week, we will talk about the fruit of the Spirit, which is, by definition, the likeness of Jesus Christ. So let me just close with you today by saying we, we have not been, nor will we ever be, accepted by God because of our righteous deeds. Never for a moment, but it is only by the work of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God causing us to trust in Christ. And Paul says, now, you stay right there. Don't go back.